0: So you meet a woman online. I love her. I just love her. But it turns out thousands of other people are in love with her too. Janessa Brazil. Janessa
1: Brazil. Janessa Brazil.
0: One woman's image is being used by criminals to target innocent people looking for love online. You win their hearts, you win their wallets. Love, Janessa. My wild quest to find her. The unwitting human face of a digital con. From CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service.
1: This is a CBC Podcast. The clock is ticking as negotiators race to iron out the details for an international deal at COP28. The annual UN Climate Conference wraps up tomorrow in Dubai. The most contentious issue is the future of fossil fuels. Many people at COP are hoping for a deal that will finally include language requiring signatories to phase fossil fuels out, but that is proving to be a clash point a record number of fossil fuel industry lobbyists are at this year's conference, and oil-producing countries are standing in firm opposition to a deal that targets fossil fuel. Farhana Sultana is a professor of geography and the environment at the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University, and Catherine Abreu is a Canadian climate activist and founder and executive director of Destination Zero. She is at COP. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi, Matt. Catherine, you said yesterday on Twitter or X or whatever we're calling that social network now, um, in eight years of attending climate talks, I have never felt so much like we're getting real about what matters. It's kind of blowing my mind. What is it that blew your mind? Well,
2: yesterday we saw um, ministers here at COP28 pulled into this Arabic dialogue tradition called the Majli, and they were facing each other without tables in front of them and just getting straightforward in their conversation about the energy transition and the amount of detail that we heard about um, the need to phase out fossil fuels, commitments to scaling up renewable energy and energy efficiency in order to accelerate the energy transition. I literally could not have imagined that conversation happening at the set of UN climate talks even two years ago. Hmm. Um, Notoriously, this process has never named the cause of the climate crisis, fossil fuels. And we've only taken a a step in that direction um, two years ago in Glasgow by naming coal. And so to see us Two years from there, already having this conversation about phasing out all fossil fuels and what we're replacing them with was really powerful. And it's exactly what's needed because a lagging energy transition is the number one thing standing in our way of delivering on our climate commitments.
1: Farhana, this conversation has been hot. Um, the debate over the language is really pointy. People talk about whether this will uh, specify abated or unabated fossil fuels, whether it will call for phasing down or phasing out of fossil fuels. I mean, I don't know that people understand. Understand What abated or unabated actually means? What's the distinction between the two and why does that matter?
0: Uh, thank you, Matt, for having me. So the issue that Catherine highlighted in terms of even naming fossil fuels. So we're trying to discuss how can we talk about the range of ways we um, address fossil fuels. So is it the different sources? Is it production? Is it consumption? Is it uh, through its various pathways? But one of the challenges that's coming out of the COP is a, a focus on language rather than actual politics. So we can talk about abated, unabated, whether, you know, it, there, there's possibilities for different forms of use, which source it's coming from. But I think what we really need to focus on is the overall production. And we know that the U.S. and other countries are still leading on overall production of fossil fuels. And they're also the historical emitters. Um, so we, I don't want us to get focused on issues like abated, unabated. We need to keep the focus on how do we phase out? What are the concrete plans?
1: Catherine OPEC, um, the uh, conglomeration, the, the Coalition of, of Oil-Producing Nations, put out a letter to its members saying that uh, they should oppose any language targeting fossil fuels in a COP28 deal. How much power do you think those oil-producing countries have to determine what is in? Doesn't matter it, to, to to Farhana's point, what the language is, but what is actually in that that deal?
2: So I think it's important to recognize that the overwhelming majority of parties or countries here at COP20. W- 28 are supporting language to accelerate the phase out of fossil fuel production and use um, and the scale up of renewable energies. There's a really, really just a handful of countries that are opposing that decision. But Farhan is absolutely right. It's Important to ask, okay, well, what does a decision here mean on the ground? And ultimately, what we're looking for this process to deliver is a clear signal to policymakers back at home and to investment markets that this is the moment to get serious about planning a just and orderly transition away from fossil fuel dependence in a way that we can take care of people and to do that equitably. So, a big part of the conversation here is how do we acknowledge those countries that are most historically responsible for? the problem that have gained a lot of wealth from expanding fossil fuels already and who therefore need to be taking the lead on phasing fossil fuels out and helping to support other countries that are struggling to build up their renewable energy industries. And I would say definitely the U.S., which has some of the largest fossil fuel expansion plans in the world, and Canada are on that list of countries that should be moving fast and first um, and providing that support to countries that need it.
1: But should we be surprised That there is this pushback on on this language. I mean, the the event is being hosted by somebody who's the head of an oil company who said just a few weeks ago that there is no science behind the idea uh, that we need to phase out fossil fuels. Should we be surprised that it's not even just the lobbyists, but it's the host of the whole thing that is pushing back on this? Yeah. Hmm.
2: Yeah, so that's absolutely right. And we've got the largest amount of fossil fuel lobbyists here that a, a cop has ever seen. So, you know, we're at this really interesting inflection point in the pro- this process where we either get a historic outcome, you know, kind of on the industry's home turf, or uh, we see, again, this minority of countries who really have fossil fuel interests at their heart, um, blocking this outcome. And I think that would ultimately kind of undermine the credibility of this whole
1: process. Farhana, the conference opened with an agreement to launch what's known as a loss and damage fund. You co-wrote a piece um, about the urgency of this with Salam al Haq who um, has been working on this for decades, um, and he died at, at the end of October. We'd spoken with him at the last COP about how important it was that something like this actually happened. How big of a step was that, that that that, that agreement that people have been, like like Salabahak, have been pushing for for, for, for decades?
0: Um, it was quite historic that it opened that way instead of ending that way. So um, Salim Al-Haq and I have been um, working together for about a quarter of a century. He's been a mentor, a collaborator, and an ally, so his death um, was a huge blow to many of us, Mm -hmm. Um, and certainly his presence at the COP was missed. In terms of the loss and damage fund, this is something that um, him and and many other um, activists, policymakers, communities around the world pushed for. So it was at at the last COP, at towards the very end, where, you know, those kind of, became clear that a fund could be set up. Then we went into the various meetings, the transitional committee meetings throughout the year. Um, There were a lot of compromises that were made. What's happened is that this COP opened with the announcement of the fund, but they're very paltry pledges. Only about 700 million out of the 400 billion necessary were pledged. We don't know how it's going to come through. There's a little bit of a controversy in the World Bank's role in terms of uh, kind of the host and then also uh, the, the means through which Funds are delivered, uh, questions around transparency and accountability about amount uh, and going towards what. One of the things that has come up, though, is that the very fact that the loss and damage fund has even been acknowledged and established means that there's this recognition that despite how, you know, the slowness of mitigation, you know, transition out of fossil fuels, despite the controversy and slowness and adaptation. At some point, we are already in a world where you cannot adapt anymore. And this is where losses and damages have come in. So countries like uh, Bangladesh, the Pacific Islands, Mm. small island nation states throughout the world have been pushing for the loss and damage fund because they have been already in the phase of loss and damage uh, beyond adaptation. So the issue that keeps coming up is equity and climate justice, and it is about a common but differentiated responsibility. So it's a polluter pays uh, principle, right? You broke it, you buy it. So you've caused all these damages, so therefore you should pledge to fixing some of the outcomes that the most vulnerable countries around the world and the marginalized frontline communities are bearing the brunt of. So it's historic, but at the same time, not.
1: In the face of this, you have talked about the hypocrisy of the global north. Tell me more about that and, and what you see as that hypocrisy. As people are talking about, you know, whether we should phase out fossil fuels, et cetera, um, when you see, as to your point already, the, the very real impacts of climate change in nations like Bangladesh. Mm-hmm.
0: So when I've been um working on these issues for a number of years I've been calling out a lot of countries for their hypocrisy and it's not just countries but it's the whole system that's often captured by like fossil fuel lobby interests whether it's Shell, Chevron, Exxon, um you know BP and so on uh what we're seeing is this massive uh way that a lot of um groups such as indigenous communities do not have a say where a lot of countries that do not have enough kind of clout. But we're seeing those shifts. As Catherine mentioned, this year, we're seeing a slight shift in terms of what are prioritized. But at the same time, what I mean by hypocrisy is, is this a theater? Is this more signal? Than substance, and that's what my um, kind of um, critical eye stays on. Uh, I'm hopeful that this is going to be quite um, uh, a tw- quite a turning point. But at the same time, the hypocrisy is largely how we've heard a lot of rhetoric, but not a lot of shifts mm. in um, you know countries like Canada, the United States, but also we've seen. Um, you know, Denmark, Norway and Saudi Arabia and China and every other country that's kind of accelerated fossil fuel production to meet increasing demands because we don't have viable renewable alternatives. So the question is, how do we flip to make it more um, viable, more efficient, more affordable at different ways to have non-fossil based energy sources, but also to reduce the overall demands on materials and energy um, in general. So part of it is also me critiquing the uh, entire ideology of kind of endless economic growth mm-hmm. on a finite planet, which we really should not be doing. But people aren't really talking about what does growth and prosperity look like? We're just constantly focusing only on, um, you know, how do we get more out of the system? But the more and more means more tipping points, right? More runaway climate crisis. So it's, it's a wider issue that, that I hope
1: we start to discuss. Uncover, from CBC Podcasts, brings you award-winning investigations year-round. Infiltrate an international network of neo-Nazi extremists. He ranted with racist language. Discover the true story of the CIA's attempts at mind control. Their objective was to wipe my memory. Or dig into a crypto king's mysterious death and a quarter billion dollars missing. There are deep oddities in this case. With Episodes Weekly... Uncover is your home for in-depth reporting and exceptional storytelling. Find Uncover wherever you get your podcasts. Catherine Abreu, in Canada, the federal government announced a new cap-and-trade system for the oil and gas sector. It's getting pushback from a number of constituencies, including from Alberta. The premier of Alberta has been in Dubai for COP. What do you make of the plan that was announced by the federal government?
2: So, you know, it is the case that there's things that this process at the international level can do and things that it can't do. And um, what it can't do is go into every single country and determine policy. But something that's important to acknowledge about this particular set of UN climate talks is we're we're here having what's called the global stock take. This is a moment of reckoning on the progress that we've made so far toward implementing the goals of the Paris Agreement. And so we're taking stock of how far we've come, how far off track we are ultimately. Um, And the results of the global stock take here are actually meant to inform the next round of pledges that countries make under the Paris Agreement. And so that's significant. But because what it means is the signals coming out of here are directly meant to inform policymaking on the ground back home. And that's ultimately what needs to move in order for this situation to change. It has been years that Canada has been failing to develop policies to significantly address the largest source of emissions in our country. The oil and gas sector is responsible for over a quarter, close to 30% of Canadian emissions. And while we have policies in place or planned to address emissions from almost every other sector of our economy and drive them to net zero, we've been seeing this glaring gap in our suite of climate policies of how we address the most significant and fastest growing source of emissions. And finally, after two years of promising a cap on um, oil and gas emissions in Canada, we saw the framework for that oil and gas cap introduced here at COP28. It's a good step forward that we're finally addressing um, this huge elephant in the room when it came to Canadian climate policy. And so I think we must acknowledge that step forward. Um, The trouble is that the regulations that have been proposed under the emissions cap, we're hearing aren't actually going to take effect until 2026. And so if we actually see that timeline pushed out so far past The next election, which is supposed to happen in 2025, Mm -hmm. you know, are we even going to get these regulations? And we're just giving the industry, again, our largest source of emissions, three more years to continue emitting. There's also some compliance flexibilities that are built into the framework, including the ability for the industry to offset some of its emissions um, and to pay into a fund in order to, you know, make up for perhaps not being able to meet the cap. And so we're going to have to see very, very strict rules being put around those compliance mechanisms and to see the timeline Hmm. for these regulations to move up for this to be a serious policy.
1: We're just about out of time. We only have a couple of minutes left. We've just noticed uh, that the new draft negotiating text at COP28 contains no mention of phasing out fossil fuel use. And so briefly and finally, Farhana, to you, you talked about the di- idea of the difference between theater and substance. If you don't see that kind of language in this final agreement, how do you see what's happened over the last several days in COP and in, in Dubai as anything more than theater? Do you see the substance that you actually need to see in this moment?
0: No, I, that worries me. So I'm hoping that before everything closes out tomorrow, or the day after, that there are, you know, enough uh, pushback or resistance or renegotiations, because we do need to have substantive language. On um, phasing out and, you know, a timeline, even if it's not as concrete, we do need to still have some of that signal because it does inform domestic policymaking and it does inform, you know, what kinds of uh, pressure points we need to apply. Mm-hmm. So in some ways it might be theater, but I still hold out hope that there's enough possibility.
1: Catherine, just briefly from you, where do you see the opportunity for substance here? What, what, is, it, what is success and a successful outcome at this
2: So it is true that parties have been calling for a phase-out of fossil fuels, and I want to see that get back into the text. What we got today is still a draft, so there's room to move, but we do see an acknowledgement in here, and I'm holding it in front of my eyes, for the need to reduce both the consumption and production of fossil fuels in a just, orderly, and equitable manner. And so I think we can strengthen that language to get the real signal on phase-out, and I appreciate that we already have language in here on it being a just, and orderly, and equitable phase-out.
1: Let's see what's in the final agreement. In the meantime, I'm glad to talk to you both this morning. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you. Thanks, Matt.
1: Catherine Abreu is the founder and executive director of Destination Zero. She was at COP in the United Arab Emirates. Farhana Sultana is a professor of geography and the environment at the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.